1: Hey, what is up everyone? This week on the Ascend podcast, we're joined by Tom Benzel, who is a multi published author in the technology field and is a very deep thinker, just like we what we like to see on this podcast. And in this podcast, we discuss his latest book called If DNA is Software, Who Wrote the Code? What a question that is. So, as you will hear in this podcast, Tom comes at this question and concept from a very interesting angle. And he is somebody who was completely immersed in the technical side of software, and whilst he was working in the area, he realised that software or code has identical properties to DNA. He called it programming language, which is so fascinating. And just to open up your curiosity senses, a few things that I've come across and a few points about DNA, is that DNA is approximately 120 times narrower than the smallest wavelength of visible light, and the average human being is made up of 100,000 billion cells According to some estimates and this means that there are approximately 125 billion miles of DNA in a human body and that is correspondent to 70 round trips between Saturn and the Sun and you could travel your entire life in a 747 flying at top speed and you wouldn't even cover 100th of the distance. Wow. And your personal DNA is long enough to wrap around the earth 5 million times. Yes that's right 5 million times damn. So anyway, I've always been fascinated by the conversation of DNA and even if we just take a look at a lot of ancient descriptions in mythology, the Egyptians, the Sumerians and other cultures as well, they always talked about and depicted the intertwining double helix strand of DNA and they usually depicted, depicted that as two uh, serpents in a dance with one another and this has all been prevalent throughout history and just like in the book the cosmic serpent as well written by jeremiah Norbury, he brought to the table that there is some sort of correlation between shamanic journeys consciousness and altered states all crossing over with visions of serpents and linking that to the interaction with dna so who knows maybe there is a message within our dna And if it is code, just like software, what information or knowledge could be stored in there? And who wrote the code? Aliens, our future selves, our past selves. So many talking points that we definitely get into in this podcast. And every time I was actually trying to find some more research or information on DNA, I kept coming across the word junk DNA, which I'm sure a lot of you have also come across as well. Which I've actually now realised and come to my own conclusion that this term is really only being used by the mainstream science because they literally don't know what the majority of our DNA is. And many estimates also say that 98% of the human DNA is junk. And I'll leave that one up to you to decide on that one. But anyway, I really do think that in the future when we advance our abilities in the area of DNA and understandings about the human genome, we will discover that it's a lot more complex than we ever thought. So anyway just before we jump this one I just want to say thanks so much to all the patrons who've decided to support the podcast it really means a lot and anyone else who wants to support the podcast and hasn't yet and if you feel that these conversations add value to life the best way that you can help us out is by supporting the podcast for our Patreon page and Patreon basically is a platform that allows you to choose a certain amount each month that you want to donate each month whether that's two dollars five dollars ten dollars whatever you can and also in return as well as supporting the podcast you also get some cool bonuses and as you know we've never bombarded you with shitty products advertisements like everyone else is doing we see enough of them shitty advertisements in our day-to-day life and this is not the place for that this is a place to come that is free of all of that so anyway on the patreon page there is raw podcasts and rants that don't just quite make the podcast, and a few conversations as well on there that we might actually get assassinated for if we put them on the regular feed. So anyway, if you want to see us get assassinated, go to the go to www. slash ascend and support the podcast. So anyway, if DNA is software, who wrote the code? Open up your DNA senses and enjoy. <laughs> Have you always been someone who's actually been fascinated by the biggest mysteries of life?
2: Yes. uh, I had a very interesting and wonderful job in my 20s where I was able to work in um, other countries as a tour guide. And so I, I was exposed to other cultures. And I had an interesting experience in the Yucatan right near Chichen Itza, which I was fascinated by, when a friend of mine gave me a book about the Egyptian Pyramid. But he, uh, the Great Pyramid. But he gave me that book in the Yucatan. It was kind of an ironic thing, and that really started me because it real, it, it kind of shook all the foundations of the conditional, the conditioned beliefs that I had about human history, the the lifespan of man, and what we really knew and what science could really, what science at that time, especially, could really tell us. So I I, I really kind of embarked on it, and I was on my own a lot. So I embarked on a kind of a, a quest for answers for things that, uh, you know, that the kind of, like the first one really was was who built the Great Pyramid? Why was it built? Uh, can we really account for it in any in any logical way? Things like that. So I've been I've been intrigued by this kind of stuff for my whole life. Then I kind of had a gap for a long time where I was trying to pursue an actual career,
0: <laughs> and
2: then a few years ago, uh, and I mentioned in the book. And I went through a period where I was doing a lot of computer-related stuff, and I was writing books about, for end users, how to use software. And then about seven years ago, I saw the video that I reference in my book, which is this video by Juan Enriquez, a, a very noted geneticist on TED, you know, the TED videos. And he, was, and he compared an Apple to an application. And he said an Apple is, a comu- is like, he said it's a computer application because it's running code, it's running DNA. And when it gets enough energy from the sun, it executes the code, it's like a mouse click, he doesn't say that, but that's input, right? It executes its code and drops from the tree. And his entire presentation was the confluence of DNA code and computer code, so I dug deeper. And in my presentation, in the book you can see, I put HTML code on one side and uh, the, uh, the, the Ebola code the source code for Ebola, which is in his presentation, which is just A C T G in different combinations, and you can see that they're both symbolic, logically constructed programs. So they're both really software, and that kind of shook me up because I, it, it it raised much deeper questions that have been with me all the way back to when I started with the Great Pyramid.
1: Well, I absolutely love that, by the way, as well. So, would you say when you were saying that story there, Tom? Would you say that? So you, were, you you said there you were comparing sort of well, well-known types of software and then within that sort of, when you were researching them, that software, did you actually realise that DNA had a very sort of similar language to and software?
2: Yes, well I really you know, it's funny because I'm not really a uh, technologist by, by training. I, I was a liberal arts major and I got into it late in life and I became a writer about, about how to do presentations. And I started working with uh, Microsoft Office and Macros. And I started writing my own macros and my own own small little applications. And so when I saw the Enriquez video, I realized that when you have, the way I put it in my presentation is, all all symbols are encoded intelligence. And it goes back through human history. So the first one, one of the earliest ones we know over, like the Lascaux cave drawings, right? It's encoded intelligence, it's artwork, it's, 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 it's giving a message, it's, it's delivering a message. All the way from there, you go to speech, you go to writing, you go to more, uh, you go to Guten, uh, You know Gutenberg Press, you go to internet and all that stuff. All of that is encoded intelligence. What happened with computers, which has only recently been done in the whole span of human history, with computers you get active encoded intelligence. So you have code that performs tasks intentionally. We've only done that in the last maybe 50 years. And our populace has only gotten really experienced with that, a very small percentage of the populace, relatively recently. But when you compare it to DNA, this active encoded intelligence, this organic programming language that works with chemicals and proteins rather than silicon like our computers do, has been around for 4.6 billion years. And here's the key point that I try and really hammer home in my presentation and my book, is that when you have encoded intelligence or when you have symbolic uh, uh, intelligent uh, a symbol, every symbol has a meaning. And every meaning implies that there was a mind at the heart of that meaning that created it. Uh, or that spawned it. I don't want to say created because I don't want to get into creationism or any of that stuff. Because my question is an open question. I don't have an answer for it. Yeah. <laughs> but the reality is that all of the computer software that we've created, we protect it as intellectual property because we recognize it's the product of, in, our, in the case of Google, Facebook, computer software, Microsoft Word that we use, it's all the product of massive teams of very intelligent programmers and strategists that have intentionally coded that software. We don't have an answer for DNA, but it's so incredibly complex, and it's and of course we also call the stuff we don't don't understand in DNA junk DNA, which is another ridiculous thing. But we have to address the fact that DNA is encoded intelligence, active encoded intelligence that we can't account for at the present time.
0: Well, oh, you're absolutely a completely. Powerhouse of um loads of amazing things there. Uh, me and Dan were both want to jump in loads of times. And um, Tom, something that actually I want to jump in at is when you actually started talking about like um, the cave paintings, and I was just thinking, so like the pyramids and all these different like past civilizations all leaving off leaving us this like understanding and code, as you put it, and like this coded intelligence. I, I, like obviously you're putting together like the symbols now t- to then. Do you think there's been much difference between the past knowledge and now and knowledge? What we've got now?
2: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a great fan of Graham Hancock's uh, cosmology, I, you know, which really suggests, and there's so much evidence for it. We can get into it if you want. That um, that we are the degenerated offspring of se- maybe more than one, but several ancient civilizations of incredible technological achievement. The difference is. And and with the Great Pyramid, the thing that really got me started was the encoded information in the Great Pyramid. In other words, I I read a book by uh, Peter Tompkins, who wrote The Secret Life of Plants, and he gives a wonderful uh, overview of all the different relationships that are encoded, like mathematics, right? Pi and phi, and then even astronomy, even the fact that some of the shafts point directly at certain constellations and certain stars, like Sirius. So, if it's nothing else, the Great Pyramid is a repository. It's a memorial to encode intelligence from somewhere that we don't really know. Now, we attribute it to the Egyptians, but with Graham Hancock's work, and uh, uh, I can't remember the, the other guy's name, that uh, he, he looked at the Sphinx. Uh, Robert Schach, his
1: name Yeah, is, yeah, yeah.
2: He looked at the, sp- the base of the Sphinx, and he noticed that the striations, and so now they've, they've dated the Sphinx much earlier at a time when there could have been, uh, you know, water erosion that would account for that. And so, yes, I think... Uh, and Graham's work with golbeki Tepe, where he, he describes how this wasn't the the, um, the result of, of, of evolution of a civilization. It appears that Golbeki-Tepi Tepe appeared completely finished, like it was somebody trying to uh, save the last remnants of knowledge from something else. And, of course, we have the legend of Atlantis from Plato. Uh, You know, that's the the civilization here. And then now we're exploring the stars, so we have to consider the possibility, uh, you know, that extraterrestrials might have influenced us at some point. I think it's something we have to consider. With DNA, I just want to make it an open question. We don't know how to account for it. But if we take it at its face value without reading anything else into it, we have to come to a conclusion that it is the result, the product, the evolution of a tremendous intelligence, because only a tremendous intelligence could could be the agency or the agent for encoding all of all of organic life. You know, I mean, everything's running DNA. You know, if you had a fly, I land on my table at at a, uh, when I was up in the mountains last summer. And I looked at this fly, and it was like just twitching, right? And I go, that fly is running the same operating system, the same organic operating system. Its chemistry is performing instruct- is following instructions and performing operations in exactly the same way it's happening in my own body. And the same thing is even true of planet life. All life that we know, except maybe very primitive viruses, which might have been the progenitors of DNA on our planet, run DNA. Just like we run Windows on our computers.
1: Great point, by the way. Again, powerhouse of a point. And uh, I was actually going to ask you as well. Have you actually seen when you start a touch back on DNA there again? Have you actually seen the, um, the new sort of video that I think it's on? I think it's on YouTube. It's definitely on Facebook. We share that on our Facebook page. But it's basically um, it was t- it was a video where scientists have recorded um, DNA replication in real time. And I think that what what they did is the scientists sort of um, extracted DNA from bacteria and they sort of dyed it. And then what they did from that, they sort of video, uh, video recorded it and then watched the DNA replicate itself. But what it was very interesting to me because the footage said to me that it's sort of like DNA itself was some sort of intelligent sort of organism, like actually trying to communicate with, it, with itself. Have you seen that?
2: No, I haven't. I'd love to see it. If you could send me the link after we get off here, I'd be happy to look at it and, uh, you know, comment on it. Um, you know, it's, it, it, there's a skeptic, his name is Michael Shermer, He's quite well known. I happened to meet him for a couple of minutes at a at a, at a thing I went to in L.A. and I pitched him. You know, what my idea was,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and he looked at me like I was an idiot. And he was like, the answer to my question was evolution, which is really what you're talking about. You're talking about the process that's already in, already happening with life, which is this incredible replication that's being done. But all of that is being instructed and informed by mind product. It had to come from some, the only explanation we have as humans, maybe we're projecting, and this is one of the beliefs I have, is that all of our scientists are sort of projecting our own anthropomorphic uh, prejudices onto this process. But the one thing we can say for sure, based upon our own experience with our own software, is it has to be the product of a mind. So whatever process you describe to me that they've replicated, a few years ago, uh, CNN said, they had a thing that, that it was right after gene sequencing and all that. And they said something that scientists had created life in a laboratory. And what they meant was something similar to what you're describing. They had they had done the copy and pasting stuff, let's say. They had taken the DNA from an almost extinct species, which I, I talk about in my book, and they put it into, a, a, it was a cat that was almost extinct. It was called an Arabian sand cat. And they basically took that DNA and they fertilized a, a normal house cat with that DNA and what came out, what when the when the when the female came to term, was the original species, the original Arabian sand. From an anthropomorphic standpoint, what we were doing there was we were copying, pasting the code, took the code from that, put it into the, uh, replaced the code in in the egg of the regular house cat, and that came out. But how does that come into being? Yeah. How does it, It's always the product of some intentional creative act whether it's Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and if DNA is an anomaly, where did it come from? By accident? Yeah. You know, there's a great story, I don't again, it's in my presentation, I think it's in the book. Fred Hoyle, who was the the famous astrophysicist, was asked this question about life, I guess at that time I don't even think they knew what DNA was or they just discovered it and he said, how do you account for the fact that this incredibly complex and brilliant uh, uh, coding is at the basis of life? And they said, you know, because science believes it's by chance. You know, maybe a lightning bolt struck a, a, you know, a swamp one day and uh, organic molecules began to behave in this way. And then they evolved. And Fred Hoyle said, to believe that it's an accident... You'd have to believe that a typhoon or some kind of windstorm could sweep through a junkyard and assemble, fully assemble, a 747. That's how complex. That's that, that's the, that's the leap of faith that you would have to have to think it's an accident because that's how precise the programming language is. And that's what I guess really got to me going back to my own programming because when I used to do little macros in my own little application, I would make a little mistake. You know, it would be a bug in the program. And the thing wouldn't work, and when I would debug it, I would find like an A that should have been a B or a comma that should have been a period, something very, very minuscule could throw the whole thing off. So think of the perfection of how that same code is working in our, in our um, biology, harmonious when, when everything's working, when we're healthy. And everything's working together—circulation, you know, digestion, and all that—and that brings me to. I don't I hope you don't mind. I keep talking.
1: But right, go ahead. Go that ahead. Brings <laughs> me to,
2: great. One more point I'd like to make in this regard. You know, one of my favorite thought leaders is Eckhart Tolle, and Eckhart Tolle talks about consciousness. And this goes back to the question I raised yesterday, but I won't belabor it. That we aren't—we don't have consciousness. We are consciousness. And what Eckhart Tolle says in that regard is the consciousness that we are is much more intelligent than, than the cognitive stuff that's going on in my brain. Like right now, I'm talking to you. The intel Right now, that same intelligence while I'm talking to you is growing my hair, breathing, running my circulation, running my digestion, doing all this kind of stuff. It is a much higher level of intelligence if you take it at face value. And I love that analogy uh, – not analogy. I love that explanation by Eckhart about what's really – uh, at the heart of being, which is this, this to us, really an infinite intelligence, what that would I mean. That, that's the only conclusion I've come to.
0: Wow. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating, brother. That <laughs> really is amazing. Um, if we could just dive a bit more into this, um, how did uh, Eckhart Tolle influence your research?
2: Okay, well, <laughs> I'm going to go back to that question again, but when I had that realization that I am, uh, or I, I, when I when I work with certain people and, and reach that point, it kind of blew away all of my beliefs. I didn't know what to believe anymore, and I went through a, a massive depression, and uh, because I didn't know who I was, you know. When when you tell Eckhart like Tolle, he's got a joke about it. He says. If you say to me you don't know who you are, I say congratulations. <laughs> but when you actually actually, when you actually have that experience in your day-to-day life and it makes it difficult to communicate with other people and you have panic attacks and stuff like that, it really wreaks havoc. So I went through a, a period of time, around the time I saw the Enriquez video, where I had to kind of come out of that. And Eckhart's teaching really helped me because it, it, it got me to a point where I wasn't I, – I, I could – I work with another friend of mine called Michael Jeffries and he said to me at one point, Can you just drop everything? You know, silence, full stop. And the peace in that moment, it it and it, you can't do it right away. You probably have to work your way to it. But when you drop everything, it's a tremendous relief because you realize that all the rational cognitive processes that you use to try and explain things are None of them even approach in, intelli- in intellect or intelligence that consciousness, that infinite intelligence, you know, that's, run- that, that, that's running your body, and it can't explain certain things. For example, the most, I mean, we're talking about the DNA question, but here's another one. You go out at night and you look at the stars. Now, your mind has a, has a, a duality inside and outside. So you say to yourself, well, there must be a boundary, you know. What's outside the solar? I can see maybe the solar system now. I see other stars. What's beyond that? And your mind tells you something has to be outside. But in that context, the notion of outside and inside just loses meaning. You can't work with that that conceptual set of definitions anymore to address that question. And DNA, I think, has the same kind of effect, especially when you have worked with computers on some level or have looked at code or even have looked at code side by side. When you realize that the HTML code, you know, if you look at your HTML code, I do it in the book and maybe you've seen it. You know, if you look at View Source and your HTML code, you see all the code. It's basically English. And it says show, let's say it says show JPEG Tom.JPEG. So my picture is displayed in the web browser, right? If you change that lettering to Dan.JPEG, you show Dan's picture or me. Mary or whoever. So just by changing the code, you change, you, you, you alter the expression of that software, which is HTML. But we do, now we have, maybe we were referring to this earlier also, now we have editing software for our DNA, It's called CRISPR. Well, if you can edit something, it means it has meaning. You can't edit chaos. So again, if it has meaning, it must be the product of mind. I wouldn't even call it a mind or or somebody's mind or you know the creationists to come and say well that's God's mind it doesn't mean anything that is just another really variable or word for something we don't understand
1: yeah I love that by the way as well and I've actually I've got a question from that as well because um when you, when you, were, you said that example of where you said when you start looking at the stars and I, I really resonate with that because you're completely right when you do go outside and you look at the stars and you start asking the question, what's after that? What's after that? What's after that? And it gets, in, in my life, it gets to a point where it sort of gets to a point where you can't think anymore. I mean, and you said as well, I mean, you you said you had turned that over and said "The DNA have that sort of similar effect with DNA where yeah. you sort of get to that point when you think about DNA and you get to that point. Yeah. I mean, have you ever explored that possibility why that could be the case? Could it be actually, I mean, this is out there, but could it be something that is actually in our DNA, DNA stopping but, us from getting there? It's, yeah.
2: It, well, you know. Eckhart, again, has this wonderful expression. You've probably heard it from other teachers saying, the mind is a wonderful tool, but a terrible master. So this experience takes you to the limit of that tool. It takes you to the limit of your cognitive abilities. Because your cognitive abilities, can which is language, which is inside, outside, or beyond, or boundary, they don't provide an answer to that question. right? So you go to the limit of your cognitive ability. The best book in neuroscience that I've been, the most, the most interesting books in neuroscience that I have found about that. There's a book by a guy named Douglas Hofstadter, and it's called I Am a Strange Loop. And he, he actually talks about the brain in computer terms. And what he's what the, the, the conclusion he reaches he reaches is there's no actual self in there controlling anything. Uh it's just a loop loop. It's like two mirrors looking at each other. And in computer code, you could write you could write an infinite loop. It's one of the coded things you can do. And then, of course, now – I was thinking about this before you called me – we have active encoded intelligence that's doing what we call artificial intelligence, which is machine learning. And what that tells you is that that code could even encompass the notion, the, the idea of evolution. But it's an idea that we've actually projected onto that code or superimposed on the code. Evolution is absolutely one of the attributes of our DNA code. That's the brilliance of Darwin and many of the other scientists that have brought us to that point. But we don't know its genesis. We don't know its origin. And it might be that our cognitive abilities are inadequate, as they are with the stars, to really understand its origins. Because maybe there is no beginning and end. It's another you know, duality, beginning and end. We think everything has to have a beginning and an end. Well, if mind is infinite, it doesn't have a beginning and an end. So it could, theoretically, you know, uh, express itself through DNA in our organism, or it could express itself entirely differently in organisms all over the galaxy. <laughs> and in the galaxy, we're nowhere near the center. We're we're like out in the boondocks. We're out in the in the sticks. You know, if we have any contact with the center of the galaxy, whether it's through extraterrestrials or through, uh, you know, mental things or whatever, it's very, it's got to be sporadic and infrequent. If it's going on at all, it's going on near the black hole at the center. It's not going on where we're living out at the vast, you know, at at the periphery of our galaxy, the Milky Way.
1: Wow, what a point again, by the way. Absolute powerhouser again. And, and, and something else I want to touch on with you as well. I mean, there's so many points I want to touch on I'm going to try and get back to them as well. But just something else I want to touch on, I mean, I know in your book as well, you used the word, um, probably ties into something that you were saying before as well, but you used the word, um, which I thought fascinating in your book, you said organic uh, reprogramming language, that's what you said. Sorry, organic programming language, that's what you said. I mean, could you, could you go a bit right. more into that and explain what that means?
2: Sure. Well, here it is. Um... When, when Enriquez puts up the slide and says if this code is in your body you're in big trouble because it's the Ebola virus and he shows you the code the Ebola virus is apparently pretty you know advanced so it has DNA and then you then I put up a, a HTML next to it okay so HTML code works in silicon those instructions are read into silicon and electrically the computer the chip, follows the instructions of English, right? Show Tom JPEG in the web browser. That is a programming language, HTML. There are other programming languages. VBA, Visual Basic for Applications, is the very simple programming language that I used for macros when I was with Microsoft Word and PowerPoint. Well, the programming language that Enriquez is showing us with, with Ebola doesn't work with silicon. It works with our organism. And so, I call it an organic programming language because instead of using silicon and electricity, it may also be using electricity. We don't know. Might be, I mean, when you, when you factor in the brain, we know that there's electric, electricity flying between the synapses, but I don't want to get confused. The actual English that we've decoded when we sequence DNA, we come up with four letters of the alphabet, which we've assigned, A, C, T, and G, and we've assigned those letters to chemicals, to proteins because that's how DNA follows the instruction. I mean, that's how our body follows the, the instructions of DNA. And if we change the DNA, the instructions change. That's how we cure certain genetic diseases already. But we don't fully understand how it works, but we do understand that we're dealing with a programming language. The, the difference is that the programming language, which it can be uh, sequenced or decoded in English, A, C, T, and G, but it really operates within our organic chemistry, within our bodies, organically, through chemicals. Chemicals work with other chemicals. They express that code in, in very precise way, ways, biochemically, so it's, it's, it's astonishing, really. But but it take you know, it, it, it takes a certain leap of uh, a release of many conditioned beliefs to be able to make that connection. But I think the connection allows you to release many of those conditioned beliefs because you begin to realize, again, the limits of our cognitive scientific intelligence. And uh, you know, when you talk about the, uh, consciousness at scientific conferences, it's very difficult because people have different interpretations of what that means. I like I, I really like Eckhart's. He calls it life. Life is expressing itself biochemically through you with infinite intelligence.
1: Well, at
2: i time, you've evolved the brain. It's able to use cognitive thinking, and that, and we can use that as a tool. I think that we can. I think. Uh, I mean, speculatively. I. Do you know? Do you guys know what biomimicry
1: is? No. Uh, have you heard of that? I haven't.
2: Uh, say it again, please. Biomimicry.
1: I've never heard of that. Could you explain? Yeah, go on,
2: Engineers yeah. use. Yeah. So it's when. Uh, just for your audience, if you don't know, biomimicry is when an engineer. Wants to design a jet, and aerodynamically he uses the, the head of a mosquito, how it's designed, in 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 the, in the uh, fuselage of the jet because aerodynamically nature has designed the mosquito to fly aerodynamically. Uh, it uses the Velcro and when they invented Velcro. It was based upon biomimicry because they were mimicking. I think it was the bee, how the uh, little you know uh, legs of the bee have. This little velcro stuff on them, so they could stick to surfaces. So biomimicry is engineering and science mimicking nature because nature has already done it perfectly. Well, I think our discovery of computers, on a subconscious level, is biomimicry of our brains. Somehow, with, uh, through our human intelligence, has evolved to the point where we will replicate. Yes, some of the not all because it, it, the brain is not, but the brain is much more complex than any computer we've created. Again, because it's organic. But the physical computers that we create with with printed circuits that run electrically with silicon are basically mimicking biomimicry, what or, what uh, evolution has developed
0: in our our own head, our own brains. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating, isn't that, and I love I love that how you actually used the um. The, the mosquito uh, and how designers have actually designed it through that and that's and it's great when you can actually compare something and um, mimic it to an extent for your own benefit such as they've done but I was just thinking that myself I was just thinking you, I'm sorry, oh no I, go ahead uh, I, if you if you or, you or your listeners Google biomimicry you will see dozens of, of
2: incredible examples from all Areas of engineering, architecture, uh, design that have consciously mimicked nature. Because they know nature is actually
0: infinitely more intelligent than what their brain could come up with. Yeah. I, 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 I personally, yeah, I personally completely 100% agree. I think nature's nature's designed it all in a sense for everything to be perfect for their own individual um needs like the creatures that you've just um like they've all been evolutionary designed for millions of years to that point they're at their peak we're always at the peak of evolution and i would just like to say this as well um when you're replicating something externally such as like um the mosquito's head it's complete in my opinion it's completely different than internally where you're completely mimicking yeah, the brain because it's such a, like a complex process of complete different. If that's what I'm guessing at, so is it possible to actually get to a point where we can completely biomimic a brain, or even the mind or consciousness itself, to the point of like exact replica? I don't know.
2: I I don't know what the answer to that question is. I think I, my sense is that the physical world is an is a slightly imperfect or Gradually imperfect representation or expression I should say of that perfect mind a lot of thought uh, a lot of teachings have that concept behind them and then because what's interesting is you know one of the uh, let, me, let me do it this way you know one of the re- mathematical relationships that's encoded in the Great Pyramid is the Fibonacci sequence the uh, the, the number five right uh, the golden circle or the golden mean. And, again, you can see that expressed everywhere in nature. The most, um, the most common one that they show you is how a snail's shell basically has the same circular uh, – uh, it grows according to that mathematical principle. And you see it everywhere. I mean, almost every flower, every plant works – not almost. Every one of them works according to that principle. But as they express in the physical world, they're slightly off they're not perfect. The perfection only ex- only exists in the mental realm. That's kind of Plato. You know, Plato had this thing that he, the most perfect world was the world of form, which was the mental realm. We are an expression of that. And that's why in his, in his famous analogy of the cave, we're, we only see the shadows, right? We're those people in the cave, maybe you've heard of this analogy, where, where the people in the cave are all are in chains, which is the human condition. And our view of reality is really only, uh, is limited by only the shadows that we see on the wall. But the ultimate reality, which I think in Plato's conception was was really a non-physical realm that we, you know, science doesn't understand today. And w- it sounds like voodoo right now or woo stuff. But, a, a, a non, but we, we live in that mental realm all the time and we have thoughts. Mm. We don't know what those thoughts are. We don't even know where they come from. Most, you know almost all the time they come unbidden as a friend of mine says so I don't know if that answered your point or not but that, that's where I went with it
0: yeah no, it was a brilliant point and uh, yeah it st- certainly certainly answered a lot of um, things that was actually going through my mind at the time and you actually brought up something that I actually heard um, before and uh, forgive me I can't remember who said it but um, at, we're at the point right now in science and evolution where we can completely understand the workings of a bat we can analyze its flight trajectory, we can analyze its wingspan, its its complete workings of its, like, pattern. It's even, like, get its neurological patterns, but completely we do not understand what it takes to be a bat or what it is to be a bat. And that always, re- that always re- thinks about the limitations of how science, are, we are always limited to, like, what we're experiencing, what we're actually visualizing.
2: Yeah. well the bat example the bat example is a brilliant ex- example I, it, same thing is with dolphins right both dolphins and porpoises and whales and bats experience the world through what we call sound mm. they use sound away almost as, as their primary sense the same way we use sight they use sonar so their experience of the world is completely different from our own They're, we can't uh, in fact, I think what you're talking about—I didn't understand your question. I think there are scientists now who are simulating the experience of a bat in in experiments, but they don't. But as what you just said is right, they can't get inside the bat's head or physiognomy to to actually sense that experience. And that brings me to one of the most brilliant thinkers I think on the planet right now. His name is Dr. Robert Lanza. He has a uh, a t- Teaching called uh, biocentrism. I call it like a biological theory of relativity. And it kind of goes along with, you know, obviously my theory with the, my, my presentation with DNA. But what he basically says is that science's claim to objectivity is flawed because its instruments work, we, we can't get outside of our sensory capacity. We only know the world, just like a bat knows its the world, only through sound. We know the world only through sight. In our five senses in our particular cognitive abilities going back into the brain, so we can't get to objective experience. All of our experience is grounded in our biology, ultimate our biology and physics. Ultimately, uh, we have we have two eyes. Okay, insects have insects and spiders have I don't know dozens, hundreds, thousands of eyes. Think about what their visual experience is like. We can we can replicate it in the laboratory. Scientifically, somehow, external, we can create a, we can create a mosquito bot, you know, we can create a robotic mosquito that flies like a mosquito, but inside that bot, we don't know what it's, experience is, I don't think there is any experience in an electronic bot, that's my feeling, there's a theory called panpsychism that says, even in an electronic bot, there's some consciousness, I don't know, but the point is, the electronic bot has not got anything like the experience of, the, of an organic life-evolving mosquito one is organic and one is electronic they're two completely different physical realities
1: wow what a point by the way (laughs) powerhouse are a point as well just just something i want to go back to before as well just to get back to the uh, the dna conversation as well because um you you said something before i think a lot along the lines you said um dna is a a programmable programmable language i think that was the word you used Uh, i'm sure you used that word anyway but sorry go ahead
2: I'm sorry say it again well a programmable well, language I I didn't hear what
1: you... yeah yeah programmable language and I was just going to say from from that as well I mean you were um obviously the the title of your book as well which I, I wanted to go into as well when you you're basically asking the question if DNA is software who wrote the code which is 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 really a fascinating question within itself as well I mean did you I mean have you actually explored the possibility of that question as well I mean I know it's sort of a big open sort of winded sort of question that. and i think to, to a sense as well that's the reason of the question because it opens you up to the infinite possibilities of what could be of it okay. but do you but do yeah, you actually well. have you actually explored the possibility of um of, something i would love to ask you is have you explored the possibility of sort of i know you touched on it before slightly but on sort of maybe aliens did modify our dna because this in my life this is something that i've been researching into and i've looked into guys like um I think he was called Eric Van Dennek. I think he's called. I think that's how you pronounce his name. But and that's sure. that's sort of yeah, like. I lo-
2: I, yeah, I love I love his work, and I think it's very possible. It's not you know we have we have no direct evidence, but it's very. I mean, the very first of all, I like to think of our different races, the races or different you know races of humans. Each one of those is like follows a different template. If you use a diff- if you use the computer analogy in a way, right. Each one comes from a different DNA template. Uh, uh, you know, if, if you say African Americans, because they're a dark, their DNA template would have that attribute in it, whereas Caucasians would have a different a different attribute. But to address your question, I think, at certain point, when, if someone says to me, well, it's okay, where did DNA – well, first of all, let's address your point. So with aliens, it's very possible that at some point, some uh, A very, very advanced civilization came down, knew what we knew, and needed a workforce. And this is the, the theory of um, of Samaria, I guess, or the Anunnaki.
1: Yeah, like rice Stitching.
2: Right, you, you know about that stuff. Okay, so that's a plausible theory, but it doesn't answer the question because where did their DNA come from? Where did yeah. <laughs> their, you know, so you know, it's just kicking the can down the road. The way I like to address the question is as follows. So what can we actually say? based upon the stuff in my book and what I've presented today. All we can say is that DNA is the product of mind. Mind exists. We know it from our own experience, but we don't, you know, we we can call it consciousness or whatever. But it's beyond our scientific capability of defining or controlling. But we know that every software program that we've created, again, is intellectual property is mind-product. So my summary in my book is the only thing, the only incl- conclusion that I'm comfortably comfortable drawing is there must have existed at one point, or perhaps still exist, an intelligence far superior to our own. I have no idea whether that is, uh, you know, whether that intelligence exists in aliens, as von Däniken suggests, or it exists in nature, or it's part of just what we call reality. But when you go back to neuroscience or Eckhart Tolle, one of the discoveries, and it's very disquieting, neuroscience has not discovered a physical self in the brain. In fact, David Eagleman, who's another neuroscientist that I really enjoy his work, he calls the brain a, a, a bunch of committees that are basically firing up synapses and neurons are firing. And the decisions that are made are not by one person named Tom, in my case. Also, they're epigenetically uh, influenced by the environment. So it's a very complicated or or complex relationship that we are experiencing in what we call life. In order to make it simpler for ourselves, we've created this sort of idea that I'm Tom and you're Dan – and, uh, and of course we need that to get around through our physical thing. But there's nothing in nature that's Tom or Dan. You know there's maybe your body, you can call it. it you know, is, is, is a, an organized group of organs that is organized itself as Dan, and in my case, as Tom. But going back to the central question, we have no explanation for what this intelligence is all we can see in DNA. Is how it's expressed itself. And we can see that because our own more primitive intelligence, I would say, has created these other software programs, and every single one of them was created by mind. None of those came into being by accident. Google didn't come into being by accident. Facebook didn't. Microsoft didn't. You can't name one.
1: Yeah. Stop yeah I love that point again as well And it, when you said as well before you said you said a great point you said there must have been a time where sort of some minds existed sort of much far more powerful than ours and that's something I've really contemplated and that's what actually sort of that's one of the reasons why I asked you that I did ask you that question because it's a question that's been on my mind because I came across the work of uh, Zachariah Stitchin, and, and um, he was trying to I think it, he was trying to depict the, the Sumerian tablets that's what he was doing but what I, what I find fascinating about that work is, yeah and what I find fascinating about that work is that um he he obviously said what you said that you said there you you said this the the example of he was it was a case of creating a worker sort of humans to sort of I think I think a lot of people say it to mine gold for the anunnaki and stuff like that. But what what's interesting to me as well is that obviously in a uh, Zachariah Stitchin's work he also talks about that concept of a uh, race came down whether you want to call it the anunnaki or whatever you, whatever name you want to label it. But he talks about how a race did come down and sort of alter our DNA. But what's interesting about that is is the summit, obviously he he said that he, he depicted that from the Sumerian sort of tablets but what's interesting to me is that on them tablets them tablets were sort of 6,000 6, years ago when at that time in history a lot of people sort of presumed that sort of race as someone who wasn't wasn't advanced and that that's very interesting to me but also on, the, on them tablets as well which is interesting to me just I want a point I want to tie in as well is that which I found fascinating that they also sort of depicted um Sort of the elliptical orbit of a, another planet that they call Planet X. But what's what's interesting to me as well? What I, I was I think this was a few months ago, but there was an article somewhere on one of the one of the um one of the big sort of science s uh, one of the sort of science pages on Facebook, and they were talking about how scientists are now actually. I'll come to the conclusion in the and a lot of them were 90% sure that there is another planet just past, past Pluto that they actually couldn't see So, and in, in, in what's also interesting as well something else I wanted to see as well is that on them Sumerian tablets which, to tie back to DNA on them sort of Sumerian tablets there was also depictions of the double helix uh, strands of DNA yeah yeah
2: yeah I saw something similar with the uh, with the Dogon tribe of North Africa and uh I have the guy's book over there. I, can't remember. I can go walk over and look at it. But anyway, the, their symbology uh, was very much like what we currently have in quantum physics in terms of how the electron look, how the atom and the electron and, and even some subparticles work. And then the Dogen tribe in North Africa, also, they worshipped the star Sirius, S-I-R-I-U-S. And they knew, they knew supposedly... That Sirius was really a binary system; that it has a companion star that's not visible unless we use a very, you know, powerful telescope. So how would they know that? Uh, there are all these kinds of mysteries, and they, and then someone else comes along, like Michael Shermer, and they debunk the mystery because the mis because we don't really know, and science hasn't got definitive evidence for any of these things at this point. But I think they all point point the way toward it's more mystery. I mean, I, I think that uh, re, I think that science will really take take. Oh, I, I want to address something. Yeah, it, with the Anunnaki, I think by uh, anthropologists have have kind of discovered that there was like a quantum leap of human intelligence in that period. Right up until that time, hominids or whatever humans were populating the earth were relatively primitive. They had some tools, maybe they painted some stuff, and then right after that the Anunnaki visit or whatever, there was a quantum leap in technology, in human intelligence. Um, Graham Hancock, when he talks about the cave drawings in, in, in Europe, he's, he attributes that possibly to the use of psychedelics that opened up their minds in some other way. So there's many different, quote-unquote, scientific explanations for this stuff, but none of them have been really nailed down, Part of, partly because of the limitations of science that I think, we've come up against in this, in this conversation. I think the next big step for science, and you see it in for science and non-duality, which I was privileged to end a few times, the next big quantum leap for science is acknowledging the reality of consciousness, even though it can't explain it at this point. Because if you look at quantum physics again, you know, is, it, is light a particle It's neither until it's observed. Or you have that Schrodinger's cat, you know, experiment. Is the cat dead or alive? Well, the isotope, the radioactive isotope inside the box doesn't really express whether it's dead or alive. It doesn't really kill the cat or let the cat live until you open the box and look at it. It's mind-boggling. It's the same limit of our cognitive abilities, I think, that we talked about earlier with with stars in the sky. Because our limitation through our language is with the stars in the sky, inside or outside. Limitation with Schrodinger's cat, dead or alive, light, a uh, particle or wave. These distinctions don't. These, these distinctions don't actually occur in nature. They're all superimposed onto nature by our cognition, by our language, by the way we think. Uh, I saw this brilliantly portrayed. I thought in the movie Arrival, where uh, the main character, uh, Amy, I forgot her name, uh, you know, they have to communicate with this completely alien species that suddenly appears. And they realize that their way of th- – they're, 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 you know, Eckhart talks about the content of thought and the structure of thought. So it's what, what we think and the way we think. We can't think the way aliens think because they think – as Apple says, they think different. They think at all. But they could be thinking infinitely intelligently differently than the way we think. I'm sorry, going back to your bat. Because they, and that's what the film Arrival did so beautifully, we don't know how they experienced life. Those those beings in that film were using some kind of ink lots, right? Mm
0: -hmm. Mm. And
2: that's how we finally finally communicated with them. But, But it comes back to that great thing. We don't know what we don't know. (laughs)
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: we can't know how ignorant we are. we can't know how ignorant in the, in the grand scheme of things we really are and what science has done for us because we've accomplished so many unbelievable things with science makes us think makes gives us the, the, the delusion you know Dawkins calls it the how uh, uh, would he call it the god delusion well really there's because he's attacking you know primitive religion or, or the the low-hanging fruit of the guy in the sky with the big beard who makes everything happen. So Dawkins, who's an atheist, calls it the God delusion. But there's actually a science delusion, which we've been talking about this whole, you know, 45 minutes or an hour, which is our assumption with science that it's objective, that it is objective. It's not objective. We've already discussed it. Bat science, or dol- let's use dolphins, because dolphins are have bigger brains than us. To the extent that dolphins have a science, it's a completely different scientific paradigm than ours because they experience a completely different world. They live in the ocean. They navigate with sound. They have eyes, but they don't really use them the way we use them. And they have language. So their experience of nature or their experience of living is completely different from ours. And to think that our science can completely understand their experience is very uh, – it's hubris. You know, it's, it's a conceit. It's not it's – not it's probably not even possible.
1: Yeah, like that. Do you know? I was a question I to ask you as well. I mean, when you when you were doing your research for your book and things like that, and you were asking a question about Danny. I mean, are you did are you did, have you read um, Jeremiah Norbury's books? I wanted to ask you ask you your thoughts on that. If you have read that, which one? Jeremiah Sitchin. Jeremiah Norbury's called. He wrote the book The Cosmic Serpent.
2: No, I'm not familiar with that. I'm sorry. I, you can send it to me later. I'd love to see, uh, you know, on Facebook or whatever. I'll look into it. Uh, I don't think I'm
1: familiar with that author. Yeah, it's a it's a really really good book, and I re- definitely recommend you reading that because he he definitely Jeremiah Norby in that book. It's a book that I've read, and it's a it's quite a complicated book for, for me anyway. It'll not be for you, <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> you, it's re- well, you're really, very kind, but it's not true. Yeah, it's really good though the book though because I think you'll find a lot of essence in it to the topic of Dania because in that book as well, Jeremiah Norby he uses sort of shamanism and sort of neurology and um, ancient mythology he also also uses as well, which we've talked about in this podcast but he talks about in that book which i thought was very interesting how sort of uh, pacific sort of biochemical information can actually be directly transmitted through dna which i thought is really fascinating and, and and which is very interesting to me is that i mean this is what i'm thinking as well maybe in the what we've talked about in this podcast maybe maybe it was that sort of ancient cultures did tap into dna and that's where i was actually thinking maybe in the past that they did get a lot of their sort of knowledge from because obviously a lot of ancient uh, Depictions and things like that, obviously, always sort of uh, have the the double helix uh, depictions, don't they? And it's all it's always if you, even if you look at some cave paintings and things like that, it's always been pre- prevalent throughout history. So I mean, I, I would love to know your thoughts. I mean, could it actually be possible that maybe ancient cultures? Did sort of. I know you said you haven't read the book, but you'll you probably have a bit more of an understanding about that topic and maybe a bit more insight after you've read the book. But d- just in your mind now, do you think it could be possible that maybe sort of knowledge sort of can be transmitted through d- DNA and we, in ancient cultures maybe you've done that in the past?
2: It's very. It's, I would think it's very possible. If you, especially when you. I mean, again, i mentioned Egypt and the possibility of a, of a of a previous civilization like Atlantis. I. The one thing you find when you really study Egypt, and we can get into this in another one if you want, is that they didn't differentiate between science and religion. We have science on one side, we have religion on the other. They had what I would call a sacred science because they looked at the the, the energetic movements of the planet, I mean, we, we look at them as primitive, you know, our science does, so they said, oh, well, they made each one of those gods, so they had a god on the island, a god actually, if you really under, try and understand their cosmology, they saw these energies as sacred interrelationships. And of course what happens in our minds and in our bodies is not separate from that. So if you have a, a very advanced shaman or someone who, or a medicine doctor or someone who really understands those forces of nature and how they operate not only in nature but within our own uh, biology, which is what we've been talking about the whole hour, we don't we don't know all the ways that we can transmit information. I mean, look, look at look at wireless. We use wireless every day to transmit. We're doing it right now with Skype. Transmit, uh, you know, bits of data between the two of us right now. Okay? There's no conduit for it. There's no wire. Wireless.
1: It's it's empty. Can you explain that? Yeah,
2: no. Why? <laughs> what? Why, why wouldn't telepathy? If someone had that ability, or clairvoyance? If someone else had that ability, they're, they're basically doing wireless, right? They're transmitting thoughts, ideas, language, maybe pictures, maybe images between organisms in ways we don't understand. I, I think all that stuff is possible. Uh, uh, you know, the IONS um, organization, International Organization of Noetic Sciences, they actually have conducted some scientific research in this area. Uh, D- Dean Radin is a scientist that works with them, and they've done remote viewing. You know, it's still very, very nascent, very young, because our modern science is so anti-that. But if you think back to ancient civilizations where science to nature were real, or, or the sacred, because their relationship with nature wasn't like ours. Ours is, we use our science to try and control nature, which is why we're in trouble right now. If we can transport ourselves into the mindset of a of a different culture, even the Native American culture, they lived in harmony with nature. These these forces, the the, the Egyptians called them netters, like the wind, like the rain, like the sun, like like all, all these forces interrelate, interact harmoniously. If we if we work with them harmoniously, we have a different experience of life than if we work against them, which is what our species. Is discovering at the
1: moment. Yeah, I like that point as well. I liked how you brought up Wi-Fi as well, because in that in that topic there, because Wi-Fi is something that that I think a lot of people just sort of they just brush over with sort of a comb and they don't really ask themselves how is that process really working. And it's it's actually something something that I've asked myself as well. I mean, maybe as well that Wi-Fi is. It means. It, it, it,
2: it, it, it means. I'm sorry to interrupt you. It really means that what we see is it, it, what we see is visible. It points to electronic. I mean, they're using electromagnetic spectrum, scientific explanation, to convey uh, electric electrical information or whatever over, over space. But what that tells you is space is not empty, or it's or the transmission is able to go through something that seems empty to us.
1: We don't know how it works. I've been doing a lot of research, and there was a lot of um. New sort of publications talking about how some organisations are actually storing data, like data, like data that goes through a computer within our DNA itself. I'm not
2: sure exactly where you're going with that. We we can move DNA, like I said before, when we can copy and paste it from one species into another. So we can certainly store it. I think there are speculation because of that and because of our experience with computers that we can also store consciousness. I don't have I don't happen to believe that. But with um, the storage of DNA brings up an interesting idea, which is, I think if you read the Bible from the perspective that they were trying to explain technology that they couldn't understand. So if you think about stored DNA, the, the, the idea that comes to my mind, and it's not my idea, I've seen it other places. If you think about the story of Noah, and, the, and you think there was a flood on the planet, How would they, if they knew about DNA, they wouldn't need an ARC. All they would need is a, uh, what do you call it, Uh, a little portable hard drive. And they could store the the DNA of all the species on the planet. So what they're talking about with the ARC is really an electronics, it could be, a storage device that you were talking about right now for storing and safeguarding DNA. It's like backing up. <laughs> All the information on the planet, in case there's a catastrophe.
1: Whoa, do you do you actually think? It's, here's another question as well. I would love to ask you. Do you think it's actually possible that maybe to go back to sort of maybe not even the alien conversation, but just something bigger, something else more? Like you said before, some, there's it's got to be possible that at one time on the planet there was something that was sorry in the universe that is highly much more intelligent than us. But could it? It could even be ourselves to a certain degree. But could do you have you actually explored the possibility that maybe some form of intelligence, or maybe even ourselves in the past, could have actually left some sort of message within our DNA, like ready for, at a time so when we're ready to record it?
2: Oh yeah. Um, first of all, we, you know, so our, our current biologists are actually using DNA as storage, as storage material. Right now, you can actually store more information, more video, using DNA than you can silicon or, excuse me, some other, you know, sorry, some other uh, storage devices that we have now. But could it be the the medium of transmission for wisdom, for example, or, I mean, there could be a timing device in our DNA, which says, <laughs> here's one, what, what it could be programmed, if this species achieves nuclear power, or go visit the planet because they might build a bomb and we might have to stop them from blowing up the planet or, or destroying all life on the planet. I mean certainly what once you understand the full and that could be in the junk DNA that we don't, don't understand. I mean it's all speculative. That's just, you know, we can play those kinds of mental games forever. But yeah, I mean it's a, it's it's an information medium. So any and that's that's why it has to be the product of a mind. You can't have information without a mind. You need a mind, first of all, to discern information, right? To see it somewhere, to see the relationship. So, you need. To so our minds, scientific minds have decoded reality level as information. But we also know that in order for information to exist, a mind must exist. All of our experience of mind has been embodied minds. We feel, we attribute mind to. There's a mind in your brain there's a mind in my cat's brain there's a mind in a mosquito's brain that's how we look at mind but we don't know mind doesn't necessarily have to be attached to a body and in fact if if we go down that that rabbit hole of there is no real self in our brain then what some people say is there's really only one thing in existence and that's mind. there's only one and that's mind. And that's really Eastern thought. That's Buddhism and, and that's, you know, Brahman, right? Wow.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Brahman Brahmin does. I, I don't really understand Eastern religion that well, but my, my sense of it is it, it, mind doesn't need a body to uh, experience it. We come in experiencing it for a limited duration. I'll, probably more limited for me than for you, somewhere in 68. But we don't know if mind has always got to be embodied. That's one of the uh, prejudices or conditioned beliefs that we work with, but it's not proven. Again, we transmit it wirelessly, so while it's in the air, there's no body for where where it is. Right, I'm transmitting certain mental inf- uh, information between my computer and your computer right now wirelessly, so we can have the uh, prejudice that, which we we, we did that for a long time before wireless came along. Everyone thought, well. If I want to move my files from my computer to your computer, i got to take a disk from my computer and move it into your computer. Well, we've proven that wrong, right? We've gone beyond that limitation. So what you're saying is maybe ancient civilizations had gone beyond that limitation by using mind differently or, or more effectively than we know how to use it.
1: Yeah, I like that. Do you, do you, when you mentioned there, Tom, as well, you mentioned junk DNA. I mean, do you have any... Uh, do you have any sort of theories or notions around what you actually think junk DNA junk DNA is? Because I know a lot of sort of mainstream sort of scientists, like you said, they just call it sort of junk DNA. But do you actually believe it is that, or do you think it could be something more than that? If you want, if you want, I, 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 I'd give you a really <coughs> far-out theory. Yeah, go ahead. We like that. We like yeah. them on the podcast. Go ahead. <laughs> like a, I think, I think infinite
2: intelligence emanates. The black hole in the middle of the galaxy. Wow. I think the galaxy is an, it evolves just like humans evolve, and the galaxy is getting more. Everything is getting more conscious all the time. On a relative scale, I think we are so unconscious compared to what might be going on near the black hole of the galaxy that we can't even comprehend it. But all those emanations, all those, all that info. Now that we know wireless, we can sort of imagine this, right? All that information makes its way. from in the center of the galaxy, we're only one galaxy, so this really, really can be mind-blowing. but if we only work with the Milky Way, let's say the center of the galaxy, which may be inhabited or not inhabited, but is, is infinitely intelligent, and, and, and that information is gradually making its way to the periphery, which is where we exist, and evolution is part of that process, our biological evolution is part of that process. It's very possible. I, I, I can't imagine that there, isn't other, that there aren't other physical beings in the universe, and maybe even non material beings. I think uh, I mean, we use the word three dimensions or eight dimensions or string theory in ten dimensions. It's all we understand that. But it, it's very possible that if we've been visited by extraterrestrials, I mean, the Sitchin thing could, could be right, the uh, Anunnaki could be right. What if they visit what, what if they visit us inside our heads? Yeah, yeah. What if they visit us? What if they visit us through our dreams? We have a world or something that happens during the night, dreams. And so that explains it. it. Doesn't explain anything. We think you know, the way we are, our science has conditioned us, when I wake up in the morning, I think, "Oh, Tom had a dream." Because I'm Tom, and something happened last night in my in my brain that I now interpret as a dream. I don't know what the hell that is. Hmm. I once had my, my, a year after my father died, he visited me in a dream. I hugged him in a dream. I felt him in a dream. When I woke up a minute later, I then rationalized it as a dream. I don't know what that, that experience while I was having it was so vivid and so real that when I woke up, I told myself, don't rationalize it as a dream trying to remember that experience for what it was. It's impossible. As I'm talking to you now, maybe eight years after I had that experience, the only way I can relate it, especially, I mean, you're a very open-minded person. If I said the same thing to a lot of people I know here where I live, they look at me like I'm a a fruitcake, right? Like I'm a nut. Well, you had a dream. What are you trying to, you know, what are you making of it? But if we open up our minds, as you're saying, maybe that's what junk DNA is. Maybe it's the wireless conduit to the center of the galaxy. And maybe the center of the galaxy is downloading its information to us while we're sleeping as dreams.
1: We don't know. Makes as much sense as anything else. Yeah, I, lo- I love that. I love how I love that point there because I've thought about that possibility before as well. It doesn't have to necessarily be in the form of a, c- a communication or information. It doesn't have to be necessary in the form of a physical UFO actually coming and sort of landed on your landed on your back in your back right. garden. It can just right. be sort of through your mind.
2: Yeah, I mean, maybe they don't. Maybe they don't need a. Uh they don't need a spaceship. Maybe yeah. they're able to, you know, maybe because they're not material, you know. The fact that we can't get to another star is again, relative to our biology. You know, we have a certain lifespan and it takes light year. you know, it, these stars are light years away, so it would take, you know, eons of time to get to a star. Well, if you're not a physical being, if that's a possibility. And we know from wireless, I mean, wirelessly, theoretically, you could send a signal. Look, we just sent a signal to the Voyager spacecraft. Yeah, that was three billion miles away with our primitive technology.
1: That's crazy,
0: man.
2: Try to imagine a really advanced technology. There are no limitations.
0: Wow. Well, yeah. I mean, if we if we can get to the point where we can estimate how many stars there are in the entirety of the universe, like when they say the number. Of, yeah. Like I know. That, that's you all, can't. Exactly. You that's can't
2: because scene. because there's still there's still first of all. Think about how crazy that – I mean I'm not criticizing you, but think about that How from a – I when mean, you, you basically put out a scientific idea. Let's count the number of stars in the sky, OK? The reality is there's always stars dying and there's always stars being born. Yeah. yeah. And the stars that are being born now will be visible to us when humanity is dead or off mm. this planet, OK? So the idea that there's a beginning and an end is just the way we make sense of our reality. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't have
1: to be that way. And just just to add to that as well, Tom, as well. I mean, they even talk about now about how certain stars that we're actually seeing in the universe is sort of them stars have already died. And it was very interesting to me because Chris Chris actually asked proposed a very interesting question to me a long time ago, and he says, um, "What if what if what if a civilization somewhere else, in another part of the galaxy, is actually looking at Earth and seeing the light seeing the light projected from Earth, but we're already dead and Earth's long gone?" And this already burn out.
2: Yep. Yeah, a lot of science, you know, a lot of great science fiction has been written about that kind of stuff. You know, Isaac Asimov and uh, and Robert Hotline and and those kind of people, and and Philip K. Dick. But you know, I, I was going to start talking about Blade Runner twenty forty nine or the Blade Runner movie. Yeah, go ahead. Because the Blade Runner movie, <laughs> the Blade Runner movie, really gets to the very question that we started with, because it assumes that artificial intel- intelligence. Can eventually become conscious, hmm. and it takes that to its logical conclusion. But the fact of the matter is, and of course they get into the thing. You know, they use they call they use the word soul. You've seen the movie, right? Blade Runner twenty
1: forty nine. Yeah, I haven't actually watched it yet. Have you seen it yet? I'm. It's on my list to watch, but I haven't had time to get around it yet. Have you?
2: Yeah. Oh, with Harrison Ford. Yeah, I think it's brilliant because it, and it, because you don't know. It, it really begs the question. Of what is life and what is human, because at one point you think this one guy—I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil the scene for you, maybe—but <laughs> at one point you assume this one guy is human, and that his android puts a a, a brain implant into his head and upgrades his his mental abilities. You know, he, he, it's like you know putting a uh, a hard drive, uh, you know, an external drive into your computer, and all of a sudden it expands his cognitive abilities. It's brilliant. But it also begs the, all the questions that we're as, asking in this in this um, podcast, because where did the original capability to synthesize to synthesize life come from? They never really addressed that in the movie. Um, but the movie asks: Is this character human or is he an android? Yeah. And again, you know, what's interesting about that? It's the same thing. It comes down to our language, right? We, I, we we define what's human and what's an android. In nature, if I were to build a perfect android here, it would be an expression of nature because it would come from me, and I'm an expression of nature. Mm.
1: Yeah. Do you, do you actually when you we say- think
2: of our technology, we we think of our t- technologies being separate from nature. We call it artificial intelligence, but it's not artificial. It's just intelligence because it's all natural. Hmm. It's coming from scientists who are themselves an expression of nature.
1: Yeah, I, I want to ask you a question on top of that as well. When you were giving the example of Blade Runner, and you were talking about how the guy sort of um, put it, I think you said you put a chip in his in his mind to sort of expand expand his sort of his own evolution. I mean, do you think that could be? I mean, to tie back in a DNA as well. I mean, this is a question I've got. Do you think as sure. well that uh, that could sort of be in the future? That could be a way for human beings to sort of hack out Jack. on it, hack out on what? evolution. Because I was actually thinking maybe that Jack. could. I was going to actually say maybe as well that could yeah. be a process. It's, Sorry, I was going to just let. I was just going to finish here. My point in a second, but I was just going to say. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say. I think that could be a sort of a process in the future. I mean, we know that artificial intelligence is coming around the corner and things like that, and that could be a way that we could hack our own DNA to sort of combat with the AI intelligence. I mean, maybe that could be a possibility.
2: It's starting now. I mean, there. I just saw an article uh, of somebody. Who uh, uh, I mean, they've been doing it with animals, obviously, for for a long time now. But they've actually uh, I don't I don't remember the details, but it was um, uh, you know they somebody had a genetic disorder and they reprogrammed their DNA. They did it with a transfusion, I think, of some kind, right? So new, new blood cells with new DNA or whatever were introduced into a system, and then they reprogrammed his DNA to maybe not have. Parkinson's disease. I'm just guessing right now. Okay, mm-hmm. but that's very it's that the beginning of that is happening right now. It might go back to your junk DNA concept, we well, maybe the junk DNA also contains the means by which we can continue to evolve by reprogramming our own DNA. Uh, the same scientist that I, that I mentioned, uh, Juan Enriquez, the geneticist who made the original video, he's got a book out called. All evolving ourselves and it basically takes the scientific perspective of where we are now and speculates we're right at the cusp. I mean we're doing it right now. And of course it could be horrific. I mean uh, there are many very, very horrible outcomes to this too. I mean we could, I mean if you think about you know the Nazis, they wanted to create the perfect human. Well they fortunately they, their, their uh, genetic abilities were relatively primitive. If they had today's genetic abilities, God knows what they would have come up with or what, what kind of a, an army they could build or what kind of a workforce, a slave labor workforce that they could build. So those are the dark side of it. But from the from the bright side, maybe we can get off this planet. Maybe human humanity can continue to exist. But in order to exist, and this is, again, Eckhart Tolle's idea, in order to exist, we have to evolve psychologically. We have to lose. We have to begin to understand the limitations of what of, of our current level of thinking as Einstein said and get to a new level of thinking
1: yeah I like that great point by the way as well and this is yeah. this is an interesting question I want to ask you as well on top of that Um around the DNA topic as well I mean have you ever actually thought about if cause this is this is something I like I'm a sort of a I was deep thing about deep thoughts but i have actually I was thinking about have you ever thought about if DNA has its own agenda say it again if if is, like we had the conversation before we're talking about how DNA is sort of it's it, it's self-replicating itself and it seems to be like sort of an intelligent sort of sort of organism for a sense I mean do you actually think that DNA may actually have its own agenda
2: oh yeah I think it's a gen- first of all we know two agendas it has we know we can identify two agendas right off the bat survival and evolution mm. right. I mean, if you if you're thinking about Microsoft Word, what is the purpose of Microsoft Word to create a document? What is the what is the purpose of PowerPoint to create a presentation? What is the purpose of HTML to display a web page? What is the purpose of DNA? Evolution and survival.
1: Well, yeah, is that that also makes me ask the question as well. I mean,
2: now, now the, the, Let me continue though with one other thing because you gave me an idea which is, yes, just as we're creating artificial intelligence that is able to learn and potentially evolve, and we're even we're even scared of that, right? We have these, uh, we have L, L, uh, Elon Musk is saying, you know, they could eventually destroy us, right? Mm-hmm. But if, if our own DNA is programmed for our own evolution and our own survival, it is itself a learning intelligence, because it's learning how to survive that's our science right our science has been part of our evolution to be able to survive in more and more hostile environments by trying to control nature yeah. that, that's why it's gotten us a little bit off 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 track in my opinion but the the it's clear that the imperative of dna the you know if, if there was if there was a scientist somewhere who designed DNA and they had like a chalkboard or or a whiteboard where they were, you know, you know, when you see people, uh, I've had people design software, right? So they write with a marker, all the things the software has to, all the features and the methods of the software, all the things it can do and all the things it is, right? Well, with DNA, all the things it can do basically comes down to survival and evolve. And then, more and more finely and more and more precisely and at a higher and higher level. So it started with presumably a uh, a virus which might have been seeded onto the planet by... We now know that there's organic matter that's been discovered on objects that have come from other galaxies. So maybe that's how it got here originally. But yeah, from, from a virus, we got to Juan Enriquez and we got to me and we got to... You know, Barack Obama and everybody else who's evolved well, because yeah. we were able to survive as a species because, – because the imperative of DNA allowed us to survive as a species for this couple hundred thousand years, not billions of years like DNA has been around.
1: Yeah. it also makes me makes me ask the question as well I mean on that on that talking point if if DNA is sort of if DNA does have its own agenda like we we're sort of discussing there I mean it's interesting to me because obviously if we do in the future learn do, I'm not saying we're going to get to a point where we can do this but let's say sort of be a bit optimistic and say that we do sort of understand what consciousness is and we do sort of uh, figure out how to transfer our consciousness into a machine which a lot of people are like Elon Musk and sort of um, reoccurs where a lot of people are talking about how in the future we will be able Transfer our consciousness into a machine. It makes me ask the question: Would DNA, to a sense, actually want us to do that? Because maybe if we did do that and figure out consciousness, DNA itself would be whatever, sort of whatever insufficient. We end up doing,
2: well, whatever we, well, first of all, whatever we end up doing, we're meant to do. Yeah, you know, there's no judge out there. Just yeah, l- l- in, let me address. Yeah, let me address your point this way, though. If if you assume that you can download your consciousness into a computer, then you're assuming, it goes back to the original question I sent you on Facebook. Then you're assuming that that consciousness is a thing, is a property of us. Mm -hmm. If we are consciousness, that brings us into a completely different paradigm. And we have to think about all this stuff completely differently. And then the question of whether we can download it or upload it becomes a completely different kind of question. I don't even know if it's if we can address it. You know, um, I am of the opinion because of my work with you know s- some of the other stuff we talked about er- earlier that we don't have. Co- you know, there's another physicist. Have you ever heard of Nassim Haramein? Yeah,
1: yeah, very yeah. Very interesting yeah. character. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. One of his wonderful. One, he has some really cool things, and one of the things he says. Looking for consciousness in your brain is like looking for the guy inside the radio who's the announcer. <laughs> I like
1: that. I love
2: Right? And we, we, we have a paradigm of how our brains operate with consciousness that is really not proven. And as we advance scientifically, is less and less provable from neuroscience going back to that thing. There's no Tom in my brain. We haven't found one. There's a bunch of organic things going on in my brain that make me experience life as Tom. But you can't you can't take a piece of my brain and put it into your brain and you'll be Tom at this point.
1: It would right? be, be incredible for could yeah. though. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, it could be. You know, be, I wouldn't rule anything out because I don't. I don't think we know that much right now. Yeah. But uh, I, I, you know, I think we pretend we know a lot of sh- a lot of stuff that we don't know. But, um, which is what the pro- one of our one of our big social problems at the moment. Uh, but I think what science will probably get to is not that we have consciousness but that we are consciousness And that will make science continue its very very important work from a different perspective And then real pro- and then I think that'll be a quantum leap forward in our evolution that's my that's my feeling.
1: Yeah, I like that and or, we'll,
2: or we won't do that. And we'll go extinct because right now that's a very real prospect for
1: us. Yeah, I like that. And then before as well, do we you think, you- I, don't
2: know, I don't know what the number is, but for anybody who thinks that, you know, humans are somehow special, which we're not, we may be in some ways, but that's a whole different topic. But here's the point. I don't know what the number is, but something like 99% of all species that have ever existed on the planet have gone extinct. So, if we think we got some special source knowledge that's going to keep us around, the only way that might happen is if we evolve our science into a sacred science. That's me. That's my theory.
1: Here's not actually an interesting question. I would love to propose you. Know, I just thought, but on the spot there, actually. But I was thinking, do you, With that set being said, do you think in the future? Because with that point being said, like you said, it could be at a tipping point where we have to sort of, like. Graham Hancock and uh, a lot of other people talk about how, in the past, civilizations got to this sort of technological tipping point where this sort of balance tipped too much the wrong side. But do you actually think in the future that maybe the human race may actually have to choose between sort of a more sort of between but choose between the balance of organic more of an organic route versus sort of a technological route, if that makes sense.
2: Well, I don't think we have to. I don't think we have to choose because if you see the trend right now. They're kind of, they're coming together.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, yeah.
2: you've got you've got you've got electronic instruments being implanted in, into people already to do all kinds of things. Started with pacemakers, but now they're working with you know they're regulating your brain, they're regulating your heartbeat. I mean, what we think of as uh, cyborgs are actually evolving. That's really the point of uh, you know Blade Runner and all that stuff. I mean, remember what we consider to be technical or artificial, Artificial, and what we consider to be natural is a human uh, observation it's, just, it's, its it's projected onto nature there's tech, there's there's computers in nature and there's organic beings in nature and the organic beings on this planet that we are seem to be getting more and more electronic or artificial what we call artificial but all, but all we're really doing is augmenting our biology. Through our science, where that's going to lead us is a, is a huge question, which we're talking about, you know. And uh, but I think because if, I think if science continues to see us as we have consciousness instead of we are consciousness, it's going to it's going to go down some false roads, which is already looking like it is, you know. But going back to Graham Hancock, his point is that other civilizations reach this point and destroy themselves. That's why Golbeki Tempe in his in his belief system or in his theory is the remnant of an Atlantean civilization that destroyed itself, and a few people survived, and that's why Goltepi Tepe and maybe the Great Pyramid and some other structures are repositories of knowledge that was lost by other uh, other members of the human species that did similarly stupid things that like we're doing today and blew themselves up or whatever you know or or start or or, or Maybe they maybe they created a virus that they couldn't cure. You know, electronic virus or something like that. Who knows? Or maybe they discovered parts of DNA that you were talking about earlier and activated things in their DNA that caused them to to, to go extinct. And people realized it. Few people survived it. Went somewhere else and uh and and, and left that knowledge for future generations to try and figure out.
0: Wow. Well wow, that's amazing, brother. Um I was actually just wondering this as well um, on a scale of like 1 to 10 or whatever scale you want to use how how far are we to actually really getting to know this knowledge like on a grand scale global scale
2: you're asking me that question I actually think we're at I'm zero point oh 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 one. That's because if you that. think of what yeah, because here's why he, he, Here's a, here's a great mind experiment that I like to do, okay? And it goes back to that Hofstadter, I am a strange loop, and going and in the sky. So, okay, we have, you know what a prime number is, right? Mm-hmm. So a prime number is a number that can't be divided by, only by itself and one. And so we have, for thousands of years, we had humans figuring out the largest prime number, right? And then we got supercomputers. We have now discovered a prime number that's I don't know how many how many uh, digits long. And every few years, the scientists say, we've discovered the biggest prime no- number, and it's now 120 digits long, let's say. But here's the thing. We know there is no largest number. When we say something is infinite, we think we're explaining it, but we're not. We're just assigning a word for it. We have no comprehension of infinity. Just like we don't when we go out and look at the stars, or when we do a deep meditation and go inward. There's no inside and outside. That's another dualistic uh, explanation that our mind has come up with. Okay. So when you ask me what's possible, what's possible is infinity. But we have no no appreciation for it. Understanding of it because it's beyond our comprehension. We can say Using our language, there's always another big there's always a bigger prime number, right? There will always be another one because numbers are infinite But we have no grasp of what infinite truly means Because it means no beginning no end. It doesn't mean the largest thing in the world if possible It means no, no boundaries and our mind isn't because our mind thinks in language, of going beyond no boundaries at the present time. Maybe a, maybe some kind of <laughs> – here's an interesting idea, because this is actually Graham Hancock's idea. Maybe some substance in the rainforest that is now going extinct, some plant that we're now making extinct, would have the capacity to enable our minds to go into infinity. But we're killing that plant right now now because we think we have scientific knowledge that is beyond that yeah it's, you know that that's that's how stupid we yeah. are
1: yeah i love that, I love that. you're completely so right you ask
2: me where we are now i i, I think I, I think we I, I think we have to t- take the position that we've achieved an amazing amount scientifically but it's nowhere near infinite intelligence because infinite intelligence if it exists
1: it's infinite yeah, and it also gets to the conversation as well like you were saying there, maybe as well, like I said before maybe DNA has its own agenda, but maybe as well Ayahuasca has its own agenda and understands, I mean we've talked exactly. about this in the podcast before with right, Dennis right, McKenna right. and people it's like that them. maybe as well that to yeah. a sense that D- uh, Ayahuasca understands that for its own existence and own purpose yeah. of reality it needs sort of human beings to sort of to take its own sort of evolution to, to other stars in the universe
2: Yeah, could be. Me, I mean I mean, I mean, you mentioned ayahuasca. Maybe every species of psilocybin mushroom or psychedelic plant has a different agenda, but the infinite intelligence has expressed within it that it's that is its um, reason for existence. Hmm. We don't know, and it's expressed in their, in its DNA, or it's there in its DNA.
1: Yeah, definitely. Something else I want to ask you as well, I mean, just to maybe just to, as, a, as a closing point as well, I mean, I would actually love to know as well, what was one of the reasons why you sort of put this title of the book together the way you did? Because to me, it sort of says to me that you are trying to sort of take the reader or take the sort of listener or into that sort of perspective of the unknown and try and make people just sort of question things. I mean, what was the reason why you did put the title of this the book together? Yeah,
2: yeah. Okay, all right. So the subtit- the subtitle of my book is profound significance of life's organic programming language or something like that, right? So, once you realize that there's a programming language like Microsoft Word operating in your your biology, to me, that's the same experience again as looking at the stars. Because it takes you to the limit of logical explanation. There is no logical explanation at this point for it. Now we can find a logical explanation for it. Potentially, I don't know, with this extraterrestrial explanation. But as we saw before, that just kicks the can down the road. Because if that, if those extraterrestrials that let's say genetically modified us 100,000 years ago or whatever it was, are also operating on DNA, then the question remains. So when you when you confront a question like that. And I think the best philosophical... I really love and enjoy philosophy. And the best philosophical treatises do not say this is how it is. They, they confront you with... It, it gives you the experience rather than the, the, the intellectual exercise of coming up against that barrier, of how far your mind can go in its quest to explain something. Because the way it's, it's presented... There is, I don't think there is an explanation. Michael Surmer turns to me and goes, "Evolution, like that's an explanation." It's not an explanation. It's something we've discovered, and as a
1: feature of it that we have projected onto it, but it's not an explanation. It's a description. Big difference. Yeah, I love that as well. That's a that's an absolute powerful sort of point to wrap the podcast up on podcast on as well and I think as well you've sort of, that essence of what you just said there, you've sort of done that for our listeners as well, you've sort of just, you're not seeing this is how it is you're sort of just bringing, bringing the sort of information forward and it's sort of all, to a sense I think that's what our podcast is about really, just sort of we, we never say this is how it is, we just sort of make people question things and I think that's what you're doing with your work and I just wanted to say thanks so much, yeah, for, I mean, thanks so much for sharing your message on the podcast Thanks, I mean it's just one, one
2: thing I want to do is it open people up to some of the great teachings that already exist here. Eckhart Tolle has been writing about it. I've had conversations with Deepak Chopra where I've tried to make him understand that my work can open people up to what he's saying, which is, again, we don't have consciousness. We are consciousness. Everything arises in consciousness, as he says. Well, that's a very difficult and very subtle leap that many people need to make. If my book can make people start to pick up Eckhart Tolle's book, Deepak Chopra's book, and read them with an open mind, and and have that same experience, then I'm very happy because I think that is an evolutionary thing. You know, people ask Eckhart Tolle because he writes about ego and how disruptive it is. You know, this voice in the head that's giving us all this crap all the time. Well, why did we? Why did we do that? You know. It's one of my favorite things in all of this literature which is where he says for millions of years all that existed were water lilies silas and water lilies that was where life was for millions of years and in one day one of those water lilies flowered it evolved it went to the next, presumably through its DNA it flowered a water lily for the first time flowered a lotus came out of it We're no different. And when people ask Eckhart why we have this ego, which is this tool in our brain that allows us to think if it causes us all these problems, he sees it as an evolutionary tool. It's the next level of our evolution. But our evolution, if we're going to survive, it's not over. If we stop at this level of evolution, we will not survive. That's his point, and I think I agree with it. You know? So if, if this question that I'm posing about something that we all have direct experience with now, which is our computers that are running software, if that question, and if you look at, at HTML side by side with Ebola, and you see that they're, that they're doing the same thing, one is not a metaphor for the other, you have to be hit very deeply with the realization that what DNA is expressing, is the product of a mind consciousness or intelligence and we don't have an explanation for it and that's where science i believe has to go
1: next thanks so much for listening to the podcast i really hope you enjoyed that episode and anyone who wants to support the podcast feel that this conversation does add value to life the best way you can help us out is by supporting the podcast for our patreon page and patreon basically is a platform that allows you to choose a certain amount each month that is possible for you to support the podcast whether that's two dollars five dollars ten dollars whatever and also in return as well as supporting the podcast you will also get access to some cool bonuses that don't just quite make the podcast and on that patreon page as well there is raw podcast and rants that sometimes we go absolutely crazy on so anyway if you want to support the podcast all you need to do is go to sin and support the podcast so anyway we'll catch you next week where we have another amazing episode as always peace and love